This is Global Mining News, available worldwide on the internet. Welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Focabelli, and special episode. How do you sum up Pierre Lassonde? He wasn't just in the Hall of Fame. I assumed he made it in the Hall of Fame. He hosted the Hall of Fame for decades. I don't know, 20 years. I'd have to look all that up. But Pierre Lassonde is signing off at Franco, Nevada as the chair. And we have his speech. He answers questions for the last time. And that just seemed like too much of a momentous event for us to miss and just kind of perfect for this podcast. So that is coming up. And we have the Canadian Mining Symposium less than a week away. Today is a Tuesday and it starts next Monday. So if you haven't registered, go to thenorthernminer.com and you will see a big banner at the top of the website and you can just register as easy as pie. We have uh, quite a few people who have registered. I don't know if it's 1,200, 1,500. There are quite a few people. And it's interesting because it's on the internet, you can have more people. When it was in London at Canada House, the very fancy location at Trafalgar Square, I think we had a limit of something like 250 people. So you really had to limit it to, you know, accredited investors, CEOs, like, and it was part of the charm, you know, to have that sort of exclusive environment. But at the same time, it's really great to open it up. So don't miss your opportunity. This digital thing, who knows, maybe next year we're back in Canada House for all we know. So get in while you can. And uh, yeah, I'll be doing an interview on the Monday at 2.30 with I Am Gold CEO Gord Stotthart. And there is really just too much to mention Go check it out. Uh, it's on northernminer.com. And again, it's just right at the top of the homepage. Easy as pie. Great job, Aladdin, our marketing guy, making it easy for people. And that is always appreciated. Lots going on here. YMP, our young mining professionals, have just announced $61,500 scholarship fund, including a new lottery scholarship. So YMP goes from summit to summit. And Carl Williams wrote a little story on that. I'm not going to touch it in the news section, so I'm just going to announce it here where it's front and center for the 2020-2021 academic year. They are offering a total of $61,500. The idea for the scholarships was not only to support students, but also to help our industry address the talent gap. Stephen Stewart, director of YMP Toronto, said in an interview we want to incentivize our students to study geology, mining, engineering, and mining-related disciplines by supporting the next generation of mining professionals. So if you are a student and would like to know more about the scholarships, the lottery, simply go to www.ympscholarships.com. And they are funded by Barrick Gold, Nico Eagle, TD Bank, Kinross, I Am Gold, Ore Finders, Mustango River Resources, Champion Iron, Osisco Mining, and Yamana Gold. And you can get more information on all the different scholarships there. If you go to northernminer.com, look on the homepage, scroll down a little bit, and you'll see YMP launches $61,500 scholarship fund, including new lottery scholarship. So that is happening. And we're also going to look at Rio Tinto's 
disastrous blowing up of a 46,000-year-old archaeological site. We're going to take a nice, close look at that one. Very unimpressive here. A company is trying to spend a billion dollars on ESG, and then they're blowing up 46,000-year-old archaeology sites in Australia. You wonder what's going on at the top. You really wonder. I was giving these guys a break, thinking, hey, let's not be so hard on Rio Tinto. They're spending a billion dollars, and then they're blowing up 46,000-year-old archaeological sites. So you really wonder what's going on there. If there's going to be any kind of accountability, we're going to look into that in our lead story. So lots to look forward to. And, you know, these kind of debates are what's going to be taking place front and center at the Canadian Mining Symposium. So get ready and sign up today. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner. You can find us on Instagram at The Northern Miner. Find us on LinkedIn and YouTube where we host these podcasts And we are also available on Spotify and wherever podcasts are available. And with that, let's turn to Gary Poxleitner for our third installment of our Mining Minute. And special thanks to SRK Consulting, who has sponsored us. And I believe they're sponsored for the next three months. So thank you, SRK. Let's get to Gary Poxleitner. Joining me once again is Gary Poxleitner, who's Principal Mining Consultant at SRK Consulting. And Gary, good to hear from you again. Tell me, what is mine optimization? Adrian, mine optimization is really improving the process flow of your mine. If you think about a mine is what? It's it's a material moving exercise. We're really just trying to get the ore small enough so that we can move it. And the more the process is streamlined, the better it is for the economics of the mine. It lowers operating costs, increased production, uh, and increases morale, safety, and results in less downtime. So mine optimization is really, one part of it is a material handling optimization process. So Gary, connect the dots for me. How is mine optimization related to cutoff grade optimization? Well, it's your first step in the mine, right? So the cutoff grade that you determine for your mine sets the course for your mine economics, sustainability, the size of your deposit, the whole future and life of your mine. That first decision is paramount for the success and sustainability of your mine operation. It sets the whole course of your mine design and everything you do from there. So you wanna optimize that initial cutoff grade. After that, it's all process. It's all moving that material out of the mine. And you wanna optimize that material movement process as well. Okay, excellent. Thank you once again, Gary. And we will see you next week for our fourth and final mining minute with Gary Poxleitner from SRK Consulting. And you can find out more about Gary Poxleitner and SRK if you go to srk.com. And I will have a link to Gary's LinkedIn page in our show notes, as well as to his profile page on srk.com, where you can learn more about what Gary is up to. And turning to the website, we are starting off with Rio Tinto. And our headline is Rio Tinto destroys 46,000-year-old Aboriginal site 
in Australia. And this is by Cecilia Jamazmi, Mining.com. Rio Tinto has apologized for accidentally blowing up a 46,000-year-old sacred indigenous site with dynamite while carrying out work to expand its iron ore operation in Australia's Pilbara region. The world's second largest miner destroyed two ancient caves last week in Jukin Gorge, 1,075 kilometers north of Perth. The rock shelters contained artifacts considered evidence of habitation dating back thousands of years. And we have a quote from Peter Stone, UNESCO Chair in Cultural Property Protection and Peace at Newcastle University in the UK. And he told ABC News, quote, they were not only extremely important sites for Aboriginal communities, but also they were extremely important sites for archaeological understanding of the distant past in Australia. And to me, this was the most interesting little tidbit. Rio was granted approval for work at the Brockman 4 Iron Ore Project in 2013. Subsequent archaeological excavation revealed ancient artifacts at the site, including grinding stones and a bone sharpened into a tool. It's interesting, isn't it? They had the site, they probably invested in the site. Later on, archaeological excavation says, oh, sorry, we have found something, and... So it's an interesting, when you're trying to get down to, did they know or not, you do start to ask questions about, you know, when you buy something, you kind of hope that it's yours, and then all of a sudden you find out it's not yours. I mean, I'm Italian, and in Rome, my dad used to tell me, in Rome, it was always extremely difficult to build the subway, because every time they would start digging, they would find stuff. And then when you found stuff, you had to talk to the archaeological society and (laughs) that might take weeks or months and they had to dig it up and see what they were destroying. So it's not a new issue, but one thing is frankly a 2,000-year-old site, but another is a 46,000-year-old site. I mean, it doesn't sound like much, but I think, you know, grinding stones and a bone sharpening tool, you might think, oh, that's not a big deal, but how many sites like this are there in the world? So let's... Look at Rio Tinto's response, quote, we are sorry for the distress we have caused. Rio Tinto Iron Ore Chief Executive Chris Salisbury said in a statement on May 31st, quote, our relationship with the PKKP matters a lot to Rio Tinto, and that is the traditional owners, the Puntu Kunti Kurama and Pini Kura peoples, the PKKP. Our relationship with the PKKP matters a lot to Rio Tinto having worked together for many years, Salisbury said. We will continue to work with the PKKP to learn from what has taken place and strengthen our partnership. It's a matter of urgency. We are reviewing the plans of all other sites in the Dukin Gorge area. You know, I would argue a pretty tepid apology. Our relationship with the local Aboriginal people matters a lot. We will continue to learn about what took place. We're reviewing our other sites. Now, former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd, the country's first leader to apologize to generations of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children, forcefully taken from their parents by white Australians last century, said Rio Tinto's, quote, corporate arrogance has robbed all Australians. And he continues from his Twitter account, 
Jukin Gorge's shelters are nine times older than Stonehenge, 23 times older than the Colosseum, and 75 times older than Machu Picchu. And I think that's the point. I mean, if it's younger, it doesn't really excuse it either, but these are this is a 46,000-year-old site. When you start going back that far, my understanding of anthropology and archaeology, it gets a little bit more, quite a bit more foggy when you're going back. I mean, these ancient cave paintings, they go back, you know, 40,000 to 120,000 years from what I understand. So I think that a, a more than apology is warranted to editorialize here. Frankly, I think they should spend $500 million on building a museum in Australia. That is my take. If they really, if they, if they really are sorry, maybe they should put their money where their mouth is. And rather than this apology, which seems completely inadequate from my perspective. So there you have it. Feel free to leave comments on the podcast. I got a hilarious comment. It was so classic on the YouTube channel. I mean, this is uh, from Desert Sky Mike last week. Slight tangent here. COVID vaccine. Do you really want to be poisoned? Question mark. Yeah. So welcome to YouTube, Northern Miner from Desert Sky Mike. Anyways, so feel free to comment on this. Uh, as you can see, I feel a little more strongly about it than Rio Tinto does from the sounds of it. Next up, we have Barrick is in trouble with PNG again. Barrick denies claims of illegal gold exports from Porgera. And if you remember, Porgera is this mine under dispute in Papua New Guinea. Barrick is in a joint venture with Chinese miner Zijin Mining, uh, and they share ownership of the Porgera gold mine. And about, I don't know, a month ago, PNG Prime Minister said they're not renewing the mining license for ESG reasons. Primarily, the locals are pretty unhappy with things. There are some sordid stories that came out of that area, from what I can tell. Um, I'm simply reading stuff up on the internet, so I can't confirm any of that stuff. If you go back to our, me and Trish Saywell, the editor-in-chief, discuss this, and we discussed it a little more in detail. If you want some background, simply go to uh, our earlier podcast where Trish is interviewed. And so let's take a look at what's going on now. So Barrick Gold has denied claims that it sought to unlawfully export gold from the Porgera mine in Papua New Guinea that it jointly owns with China's Zijin Mining. On June 5th, Papua New Guinea's mining regulator accused Barrick New Guinea which is Barrick's uh, PNG affiliate and also the operator of the mine, of seeking to illegally export $13 million in silver and gold to Australia. Country's Mineral Resource Authority said the move would be illegal given that BNL, I guess that's Barrick New Guinea, is not allowed to process or ship gold since the government refused to extend the mining lease for Porgera nearly two months ago. Barrick CEO Mark Bristow told Bloomberg News that the joint venture, quote, categorically rejects any claim that it or its representatives have violated the law in any way. You know, just a slight note on rhetoric here. Whenever you see major denial of something in the news, categorically is the word they use. We categorically reject. Uh, so an interesting rhetoric point, since 
we are interested in mining stories here, but we're also interested in narrative and how it's constructed as we go through. And mining provides us with an excellent example of media narratives. And so let's continue here. Bristow, quote, categorically rejects any claim that it or its representatives have violated the law in any way. Bristow also explained that the dispute centered around gold that had been processed from ore that remained in its milling circuit after the mine was placed on care and maintenance. So you see what's going on here. This is all about the timing, and and we're going to get deeper into this story, but from the looks of it, Barrick's going, hey, all this ore was processed before we had our announcement from PNG's prime minister. So from our perspective, you don't have a say on this gold. And probably what the PNG authorities are saying is, if it's in the country, we have authority on this gold and it's included. End of story. So that's just how this story seems to be shaping up. Now let's go to the story. And we have a quote from Barrick New Guinea. Uh, they put out a press release on June 6th. Quote, the public statement made by the Mineral Resources Authority of Papua New Guinea, also known as the MRA, and its managing director, Jerry Gary, based on unnamed intelligence alleging attempts were made by Barrick New Guinea BNL to unlawfully export gold is incorrect. Alleging attempts were made by Barrick New Guinea to unlawfully export gold is incorrect, Barrick New Guinea stated in a June 6 press release. Bristow also told Bloomberg that a PNG court has granted the company the right to challenge the government's decision to deny its mining license and that a judicial review to assess whether the government followed due process will be held on July 20th. It's interesting, it's a due process argument, which I would think if they lose that, that's just a delay. Okay, then we'll process you correctly. You know, one would think the government would say, but I'm not an expert in these matters. Barrick and its Chinese partner, Zijin Mining, temporarily halted operations at the mine in Anga province in late April, Following Prime Minister James Marape's decision not to renew Porgera's lease, Barrick, which is challenging the resolution in court, welcomed last month a ruling ordering the PNG government to review the requested lease extension for the Porgera mine. They are applying for a 20-year renewal, and since then they have faced backlash from landowners and residents over what they claim are negative social, environment, and economic impacts from the mine. Negotiations with Porgera's operators were complicated further by a split among the landowners. So, straight into quite a mess over there, and just the final little detail on this, Barrick revealed that PNG is also asking the company in Zijin to pay $191 million in back taxes arising from tax audits conducted between 2006 and 2015. And Barrick said the request, received on April 9th, had no merit. So, Barrick has lowered its gold production estimate by 200,000 ounces per year. And there you have it. That is the latest on the Barrick Zijin PNG Sega. I'm sure that is not the last of it. So that is happening. Turning to our next story, we have this very literary story. Nova Gold responds to short seller accusations with 40-page diatribe. So earlier last week, we had a story on how short selling organization called J Capital Research had put out a damning report on Nova Gold. 
basically saying that it, the project is a, quote, systematically, unquote, misleading investors about this Alaskan gold mine, the Donlin Gold Project. And that is also a joint venture with Barrick. So Barrick, you know, if this podcast had a theme in the news section, it's that these ESG attempts, these guys cannot catch a break. And I'm not thinking they should catch a break, frankly, especially Rio Tinto. But it's funny, like it shows how challenging it is for these guys who are running these uh, corporations to really deliver on ESG because, you know, uh, you could argue if these short sellers are correct, well, where's the corporate governance, Barrick? And here you're in trouble with P&G and they're seeing there's all sorts of ESG. So, and like you can tell, like I, I mentioned in an earlier episode, I've been to Barrick's ESG page and it's actually really impressive. And you can tell they're putting quite an effort in and it just shows how challenging it is for these mining companies. So turning to the story, J Capital Research a company founded in China a decade ago that usually targets overvalued media and tech companies for short selling said the Donlin Gold Project, which is 50-50 owned by Nova Gold and Barrick Gold, quote, will never be built. And in short, this is a stock promote, not a mining plan. This story is written by Frick Ells from Mining.com as well. Shares in Nova Gold are down 25% since publication of the report on May 28th. Gary Lang, Nova Gold president and CEO, responded with a 40-page line-by-line rebuttal of the original JCAP report and explains why the company is, quote, so determinedly assessing all of the legal options available to it in various jurisdictions. Now, I took a look at this report, and I actually, like, 40 pages, you know, you know what went through my mind? I thought, you know, why not make it like Steve Jobs and his letter on Flash, and it's a page, and... Take the biggest points that J Capital has, put some numbers and show why they're wrong, and that's it. I, I read some of this, and I mean, it's talking about the Chicago Bulls. It's talking about, you know, Jonathan Swift. It's talking, he's the CEO of uh, Nova Gold, starts with how he's a paragraph on how he's drinking coffee and Ethiopian coffee. I mean, he treated this like a literary exercise. He's talking about Aesop's fables. And again, like, who's going to read all this? Like, I don't know. Are you going to read 40 pages from Nova Gold? If you're an investor, even, like, I'd have to have millions of dollars for me to read 40 pages. So it's a little, I question the communication strategy. I think you should just put out the numbers. Like, I'm just going to read a paragraph, though. So you just so you get the sense of what I'm talking about. And this is, oh, quarter of the way down. As reflected in Jonathan Swift's rather apt observation about the utility of falsehood, highlighted above, it is the nature of the beast that the perpetrators make their ill-gotten gains from unsuspecting shareholders who are duped out of their money after such an assault. For their report is not so much populated by contentions as outright mendacities of different complexions. Even so, our rebuttal will prove devastating to them, an outfit about whose reputation and tactics we have now learned a very great deal indeed. So that is a sample of this, okay? And if I was the communications guy for Nova Gold, 
I would say, hold your horses, do not release this. We need a do-over on this because this is not an exercise in rhetoric. This is more about the numbers. These guys are making claims. Let's put out numbers ahead, and the numbers are the numbers. So by taking this extreme rhetoric, rhetorical, he's quoting Mario Draghi, and it's again like he's using all this high fluent vocabulary. We know what this means. But it doesn't mean it's good style. To quote Mario Draghi, albeit in different circumstances, we will do whatever it takes. More prosaically, to those who aided and abetted this pathetic exercise, we know some of who you are, and the rest we will learn who you are. So, yeah. So that's just a sample of the rebuttal, what I called the diatribe. You look up the definition of diet. I was like, does this make sense to call this a diatribe? If you want a definition on diatribe, just another little tangent, but uh, a forceful and bitter verbal attack against someone or something. So I thought we could call this a diatribe. So Nova Gold responds to short seller accusations with 40 page diatribe. And so uh, back to Frick's article, um, he isolated a few key points and let's look at them to be fair to Nova Gold. Nova Gold says its response demonstrates that Donlin Gold, a 50% owned by Nova Gold, is clearly feasible, as well as one of the world's largest and highest grade open pit gold deposits, as supported by extensive environmental, technical, social studies conducted by numerous reputable firms. Now, just from a rhetorical view, specifics. We need specifics here, though, because just saying that numerous reputable firms, uh, to me, that's obscurity. And, you know, I'm not saying Nova Gold's, you know, quote, guilty here or anything. I'm just saying the communications, I question that. Uh, like They may be doing themselves a disservice here if, you know, they're totally, if the short sellers are wrong, they need to fix the, Nova Gold needs to fix their communications. Another point, Nova Gold and its partner, Barrett Gold, are advancing Donlin Gold towards development in a fiscally and socially responsible manner. With a strong focus on technical excellence, safety, and environmental stewardship, the company's highly experienced and well-regarded management team is steadfast in its strategy towards successful execution of this project when the gold price, market conditions, and project optimization render it ready for development. So again, it's, it's all, you know, and I'm not saying that this is untrue, but it's all rhetoric. Like, we need data here. And JCAP exhibited a fundamental lack of knowledge of geology, engineering, topography, technology, accounting, and financial assessment methodology as it attempted to denigrate Novagold and its assets. Now, to be fair again to Novagold, I haven't read all 40 pages of the diatribe. But again, specifics would help here. Where is JCAP wrong? JCAP's misrepresentations, convenient omissions, and intentional muddling of chronology, events, and data as well as inappropriate comparisons and consistent reliance on unidentified, questionably credentialed, quote, experts expose its deep lack of legitimacy. Again, we're talking in generalities here, and you kind of want to get to specific examples and then dismantle them. That would be a dismantling. I'm not sure they succeeded in dismantling. This should be no longer than two pages, as far as I'm concerned. So anyway, more opinions from your online editor over here. And that is the latest on Nova Gold. They have published a novel, a, a novella, and on their response to the short seller accusations with literary flair. Continuing on, 
There's a lot going on in the mining world. Then we have the bidding war heating up for Guiana Goldfields. And this is quite interesting. Now, let's go back in time. Silver Corp Metals in April, so at the height of the coronavirus scare. I mean, I'd call that late March, but here we have in April, Silver Corp made an offer for Guiana Goldfields uh, for their Aurora Gold Mine, and it was for uh, $75 million in a cash and share deal. Guiana was under pressure from shareholders, which said it had mismanaged, and the I believe the resource was uh, reduced dramatically, and the value of the mine, all this stuff. So it looked like Guiana Goldfields had found kind of a way out, give it to Silver Corp, sell it, and then it's not our problem anymore. Grand Columbia came in and increased the offer and tried to do a joint venture. Silver Corp replied and sweetened their offer. And so Guiana Goldfields rejected Grand Columbia's offer. Now, from what I remember, Grand Columbia Gold's rival bid was actually much better than the Silver Corp bid, but Guiana Goldfields decided to go with Silver Corp anyway, and that kind of raised a small red flag for me. But I don't know the details of that transaction. It might have been because it's cash and shares. Not sure. I, like, I just figure you can sell the shares. Anyways, let's go back. So... What's interesting about this new bid is we don't know who it is, but we have this quote that it's from a, quote, foreign-based multinational miner, and they're valuing the company at $240 million US, which is 35% higher than a previous offer from Silvercorp. So will Yana Goldfields continue with Silvercorp? Because one would think, you know, if they're getting all these higher bids, why do they continue with Silver Corp? Like, that's just the red flag. I don't know anything about the details here, but it, it, to me, it's a bit of a what is going on here. And we don't seem to be able to get the story. Gianna Goldfields said in response to all this, quote, at this time, there can be no assurance that the new offer will lead to a termination of the Silver Corp arrangement agreement and the execution of a definitive agreement with the new offerer. And accordingly, the board has not changed its recommendation regarding the offer under the Silver Corp arrangement agreement. So you really wonder what's going on over here. Like you'd think more money is more money. Why is Guiana Goldfields staying loyal to Silver Corp? And so we don't know. So that is that. So bidding war heats up for Guiana Goldfields. I'm very curious to hear how this turns out. And finally, we're just going to turn to copper. And this is something you're hearing a lot on financial radio. Copper price rally builds on China spending. And this is also by Frick Ells, mining.com. Copper advanced to a 12-week high on June 4th as China's $700 billion U.S. stimulus program focused on so-called new infrastructure and new urbanization kicked into gear. Copper trading in New York jumped to $2.50 a pound in midday trading, bringing the bellwether metals gain since its March low to just under 27%. BMO Capital Markets pointed out in a research note that data from China's Ministry of Finance showed the value of special purpose bonds issued destined for local government spending on infrastructure has already surpassed the full year total in 2019. I guess that's not a shock. Yeah, they're stimulating the heck out of the economy. And BMO says, quote, new urbanization, unquote, refers to refurbishing old urban housing stock, railways, airports, and upgrades to power grids and local utilities 
while new infrastructure includes 5G network, ultra-high voltage power grids, EV charging stations, and data centers. So you get a real sense of where China's going. They're not wasting any time. And meanwhile, the U.S. is in protest riot mode. So those are your news stories. Now let's turn to metal prices. We'd like to thank our friends at Infomine.com for providing us with these prices each and every week. And if you'd like to check them out for yourself, simply do a search on Infomine and metal prices in Google, and it will be your first result. And on June 9th, gold is trading at $1,709.06. That is $30 lower and last week's quote, silver is trading at $17.65 per ounce. That is $0.62 cents lower than last week's quote. Platinum is also trading lower at $831.80. That is $29 lower. Palladium is trading higher at $1,978.44. That is $21 higher than last week's quote. And on June 5th, copper is trading at $2.53 per pound. That is 11 cents higher. Aluminum is trading at 70 cents per pound. That is 1 cent higher. Lead is also trading higher at 79 cents per pound. That is 6 cents higher. Nickel is trading at $5.80. That is 30 cents higher than last week's quote. And tin is trading at $7.45 per pound. That is 37 cents higher. And cobalt is unchanged at $13.38, and zinc is three pennies higher at $0.92, cents. So a bit of a recovery there. So what do we see? We see precious metals down a bit, but I would say they're holding their trend lines and palladium up a little bit, but still under $2,000. Silver, gold looking strong, and I'd say the industrial metals are the real story here. They all seem to have a wind in their sail which seems to harmonize with the economic recovery story. So the animal spirits are good. The great reflation continues. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, as promised, Careless Sons farewell at Franco Nevada's 2020 annual meeting, the annual and special meeting of shareholders Pierre Lasson signs off as chair. So over to you, Pierre, and we'll see you on the other side. Now, before I turn the uh, meeting over to uh, David uh, Harkwell, I would like just to say a few words. And very short, um, my, I would say, proper goodbyes. Franco Nevada started 35 years ago as one of those thousands of junior exploration companies in a $2 million equity raise at 35 cents a share, September 1985. Seymour Schulich, my partner and I, had high hopes 
but truly little experience in this field. Out of desperation, we ended up creating a business model that was not only unique at the time, but truly one of the most robust business model I have ever seen. By 2001, Franco was absorbed by Newmont Mining in a $3.2 billion deal that saw David Harkwell and myself moving to Denver to be part of the continuing adventure. In late 2007, we had the incredible chance, the unique opportunity to get another kick at the can by taking Franco Nevada public again at the time at $15.20 a share for a market cap of US $1.2 billion. These are opportunities that rarely happen twice in your lifetime. Twelve years later, the stock just crested the $200 a share mark. I think it's a celebration of my departure, but <laughs> I'll leave that to the market to decide. What I can say is that the second ride has been just as wild and spectacular as the first one. And I'd like to first and foremost thank David Hartwell for it. David has been the heart and soul of Franco II. He's been the leader, the inspiration, and the doer. And I owe him a great deal of gratitude. But then I look at the team that he surrounded himself with and the incredible talent of, of Paul Brink, a Sandy Brana, and a Lloyd Holm. And it's because of them that we are where we are today. So I'd like to thank you to the whole team and the organization up and down who have made it all happen. And finally, I'd like to thank the analysts, the brokers, the portfolio managers, and the thousands of shareholders and stakeholders who have believed in us and help us build this great company. At a time when financial markets are racked by uncertainties, volatility, losses in the face of COVID-19, there's nothing that gives me greater pleasure than to see our share price reach new highs and give our shareholders that extra support and comfort they deserve by having invested in Franco Nevada. That, more than anything else, is reward enough for me. Thank you. And with that, I'd like to thank David. It's all yours, man. Pierre, th thank you for those, those very kind remarks. Uh, I've been working with you for over 33 years now, so it's been uh, uh, longer than my marriage. <laughs> <laughs> so it's been, a, uh, been, as you said, it's been a, a couple of wonderful rides. The original Franco, the Newmont ride, and now the, the new Franco ride and all of them have been incredible successes and a lot of fun. Uh, at our board meeting today, we were taking stock, and because it's a board for the new Franco, uh, we were just looking at uh, how has Franco done in the last 12 and a half years since it's gone public. And as Pierre mentioned, we hit all-time highs yesterday, which is, is pretty incredible. You're timing your transition, and you actually do it at an all-time high. I think most chairs and CEOs leave their companies, usually in more su suspect circumstances. But our, our market cap uh, in Canadian dollars reached almost $39 billion yesterday, and U.S. almost $28 billion. Our total shareholder return for Canadian investors is 
1,485%. It's something you can say is almost a 15-bagger. People brag about 10-baggers. This almost hit the 15-baggers. It's definitely been more than a 10-bagger in the U.S. dollar terms. And in terms of CAGRs, I have all these numbers for you, Pierre. Okay. Uh, compounded annual growth rate, Canadian dollars was over 25%, and in U.S. dollars, 21.6%. So I think uh, we spend a lot of time talking to portfolio managers. They often lecture us on how to run our company, but I think we've been able to run our portfolio better than just about any of our, our portfolio managers that have uh, taken positions. Uh, couldn't be more pleased. And so one of the things that the board did is we passed a special board resolution today, and I'd like to just take the liberty of reading it to uh, our shareholders. Whereas Pierre Lasson has demonstrated community service, philanthropy, and industry leadership for many decades, and has served as chair of the Board of Franco Nevada since 2007. Whereas under Pierre's leadership, substantial value has been created for Franco Nevada shareholders, Whereas Pierre has significantly contributed to the success of Franco Nevada, whereas the Board of Directors of Franco Nevada wishes to express its gratitude to Pierre for his service to the company, be it resolved that the Board of Directors of Franco Nevada hereby expresses its deep appreciation and a heartfelt thanks to Pierre for his leadership and convey its sincere gratitude for his many years of service that the Board of Directors of Franco Nevada wishes to formally recognize Pierre's invaluable contributions by bestowing him with the honorific title of Chair Emeritus, and that the very best wishes are extended to Pierre for many years of good health, happiness, and continued community service. That will be in our board resolution, which I expect will be approved at our next board meeting. Thank you. Um, Thank you very much. Yeah, in, in terms of... This is uh, going to go on my Instagram. Yeah. In terms of, uh, of my role, uh, I've been trying to focus people that I don't really see it as a retirement, but more of a change of role. I'm looking very forward to being, continuing to be involved with Franklin, Nevada as chair of the board, and I'm honored to be given that opportunity, and I hope to be associated uh, with Franklin, Nevada for some years to come. And I feel very confident that we're, we're putting it in very good hands. I've worked now with Paul Brink for over 15 years. He's been indoctrinated in the philosophy and, uh, and the modes of creating value for shareholders. He's demonstrated all the attributes that we think are important in terms of, uh, of uh, 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 putting the interests of shareholders of Franco Nevada first before personal interests. So I believe we've got a very good future CEO and he's going to be supported by a terrific team, especially Lloyd Hong and Sandy Branna, that are his key lieutenants in this company going forward. So I'm going to ask Paul to make a few remarks as he is about to become CEO of the company, and I'm going to ask him to handle any questions from shareholders that we might have in the Q&A that follows. So Paul, it's all yours. Thank you. Good. Pierre and David, first of all, thank you for your confidence in me in this new role. Franco Nevada is held in very high regard. It's an honor, a big responsibility, and a terrific opportunity to carry the Franco torch. Franco's always had incredibly good luck, but what has made its success repeatable is staying true to its business principles and its culture. A big part of my role will be to sustain those. These are what I think are the three key principles. 
create exposure to exploration success. Invest in good resources rather than betting on commodity prices. And debt aversion, the value of financial flexibility ahead of the cost of capital. The second element is our culture. The core of the culture is to think like owners, not like managers. The objective is to create shareholder value, not just a bigger company. Lastly, our outlook. We're a far larger company than 12 years ago, and there's more competition in our business. But mining remains a cyclical, capital-intensive, and risky business. There's a large amount of capital looking for a low-risk way to invest in mining assets. With our ability to identify good ore bodies, I believe we can be the capital allocator of choice, and there's a long runway of growth ahead for Franklin Nevada. For that, I will hand it to the operator and take any questions. Thank you, sir. And we will hear first from Howard Roberts. Please go ahead, sir. Can you make comments on the mine closures that are taking place owing to the coronavirus uh, problem? Sure, I'd be happy to. The, uh, the many, many mines across the industry that have been impacted, uh, two of our larger mines have been, Cobray Panama and Antamina. Uh, both of them are taking steps to identify how they can operate safely in a COVID environment and, and once they've established that, uh, work in a concert with the various authorities, we expect that they'll be reopening, although we don't have timing yet on either of those two operations. Uh, amongst our other assets, and there are the other two large assets, Candelaria and Antipakai, they continue to operate normally. Um, we have more than 50 other assets. Uh, of those other assets, 11 of them have had temporary closures, although we're now at the stage where a number of them are opening up. I believe we have now five of those operations that have announced that they are reopening. Uh, so hopefully we have seen the worst of that. Uh, the one element that uh, is always worth remembering for Franco is we don't have any fixed costs related to the investments. So to the extent we do have mine closures, uh, there is no loss associated if the mine doesn't get, if the ore doesn't get mined today, it does get mined in the future. So effectively, it's just a deferral of revenues for the company. Sylvie, uh, we have a few questions on the webcast here, so I will uh, just go ahead and read those and Paul can provide responses. Uh, so the first one is from Sandy Ryan from Alexander Capital. Question is, where do your financial contracts rank on a borrower's balance sheet in the event of an unexpected bankruptcy of one of your borrowers? Have you ever had to collect under such a circumstance and did you achieve full recovery? Thanks for the question, Sandy. We, we have two types of instrument, royalties and streams. Uh, royalties in, in uh, places like Canada and the US and Australia are fantastic in that you can register them against title which means that they're permanently attached to the title. If an operator does go through insolvency, uh, the royalty survives. Uh, that, there have been a few insolvencies in our portfolio, and those royalties have survived, uh, and so uh, have probably the best tenure that you can get for any instrument. Uh, the other types of investments we have are streams. Uh, with a stream, it's a contract, uh, so where you rank in the capital structure is a matter of negotiation. Uh, we like to structure our streams so that we are first in line uh, in our claim against the assets. Uh, we're fortunate that, that uh, all our assets have performed well, and, and so 
of never uh, having the issues from insolvencies. The next question comes from Dave Soroka. Um, is there any plans to split the common stock? The, uh, we, we have considered in the past. It's not something we have considered recently. And uh, the, but must say, with the, with the stock cresting above $200 Canadian, perhaps it's something that we should consider again. Uh, the next question comes from Deacon Turner. How does the board feel about the current PE multiple looking forward? It's David Harkle here. It's, it's coming down because our earnings are growing. Uh, so I think it's just a question of can we grow our earnings faster than our share price? It's been quite gratifying to see the share price move so high, but I think it's a reflection of the assets that are in place. But uh, if you just have to look at the track record over 33 years, I think we're trying to keep the ingredients to keep managing uh, that track record going forward. I think we always have appeared expensive, but that's because I think we've, never, we've always managed this company so it doesn't get into trouble and that it can be you know, positioned to take advantage of good opportunities. I think we're positioned for exactly that and this current liquidity down drought. So I feel very good about where we are. Uh, the next question comes from Bill Ring. Uh, how will the current closures affect this quarter's revenue? So Bill, a couple of things just in terms of timing of the closures. Uh, we're fortunate that the timing of most of these closures was post the first quarter. Um, so shouldn't be expected to, because of that impact that quarter. You know, as we go forward, uh, we don't know how long those closures will last. Um, so it, it, it is potential, there is good potential that the second quarter revenues will be affected by a number of those closures. Looks like the last question here um, comes from Rishi Gosalia. Uh, what do you think about gold ownership within central banks over the next, over the next five to 10 years? Does the global macro situation give you any thoughts about a change in their thinking over longer term? Uh, David Harkel here. Both Pierre Lasson and, and myself have had the pleasure of being in uh, former chairs of the World Gold Council. And the World Gold Council is the industry association that works very actively with about 148 of the world central banks. There's only 193 of them, so we're working with a vast majority. Uh, we actually do regular surveys of, uh, of the banks, and, uh, one of the, and the survey is really to see what is the tone and thinking of central bank managers. And if anything, we're seeing increasing interest by central banks in terms of their appetite for gold. Uh, most of them don't want to be too specific in terms of uh, how much they're going to buy going forward, but most of them are, are saying that gold is an asset that they want to hold within their central bank holdings. And I can tell you that there's an increasing number that have been communicated to the World Gold Council that they're willing to increase their holdings in gold over the time, that they're looking for some diversity from their U.S. holdings. So uh, I think in terms of if you want a central bank perspective, We've seen tremendous growth in central bank holdings since 2008, um, and uh, this year might, last year was a record year for central bank purchases. This year will, is, is looks a little more steady, may, perhaps might not be a record year, but we've had uh, record ETF buying, uh, so that's the supplement for the marketplace. But we're very positive about the attitudes of central bankers for gold going forward. Uh, we have another question from Deacon Turner. Uh, have you revised your long-term outlook for unconventional shale, especially in the scoop and stack, given the changing dynamics of the space? In terms of our outlook overall, and, and spoke about it in terms of one, one of our core principles is 
uh, our objective is, is investing in, in good resources and investing in the space uh, we focused in the US in the shale basins on the very best basins that the Permian and the scoop stack and, and also from a gas perspective in the Marsalis. Uh, so we're very confident in the geology of those plays. Uh, there's no doubt this downturn has, has impacted prices and, and because of that it's impacted capital. And so uh, yes, in terms of the level of activity over the next period on those plays, uh, obviously that'll change and, and we'll take that into account. Uh, but we remain absolutely confident in the geology of those plays and their long-term ability to pay us a good return. Uh, the next question is from James DeCenzo. Uh, hats off and thank you, Mr. Lassant, you, David, Sandy, Paul, and the board for all your great work. Question for Paul, David, or Pierre. Where do you see Franklin Nevada's future in the coming decade for global mining? You're the new guy. <laughs> Paul, you're the new guy. You deliver. Uh, I think there is a tremendous role to play, uh, as I said earlier on. Uh, mining is a tremendously risky business, and uh, it, it takes some very deep skill sets in determining what are the good ore bodies and what aren't. Uh, we've been so fortunate at Franco to have a tremendously strong technical team. Uh, both in management but also on our board. Uh, I think that is a, a, a core competence and uh, I've got to think that investors in the mining space will be looking for those skills and I think we can put them to good use helping people for uh, many years going forward to allocate their capital in the mining space. Okay, I think we'll take one last question here and it's from uh, Sandy Kakaya. Uh, can you please express what's the growth prospects for the company over the next three to five years? What kind of earnings growth can we expect? The growth uh, prospects for the company are, are very good over the next number of years. We have built-in growth, and that is the biggest driver of that growth is Cobra Panama. Uh, first quantum plans to expand the output of that, uh, and uh, that'll drive our, our geos over the next four to five years. That growth will be complemented with growth from a number of assets across the portfolio. Uh, so there's a baseline of growth that, that we, we've got good visibility on, uh, but the history of the company has also shown uh, that we've been able to supplement that with acquisitions. And uh, I expect in this environment in particular, uh, we should be able to add assets in addition to that. Um, your, our business, as you well know, uh, is a very high margin business. We typically run at about an 80% EBITDA margin. Uh, don't have a lot of costs, and so uh, you get a fairly direct drive as we grow our revenues. Uh, you've got to expect that our earnings will move up in lockstep with those. And it's David Harkle here. As, as you'll see on the wires right now, we've just put out our first quarter numbers. Uh, they're our second best quarter in our history, only second to the fourth quarter that we had uh, at the end of last year. Uh, also, uh, we've just announced that we're going to increase our dividend for the 13th consecutive year uh, by another to a dollar four U.S. Per, on a per annum basis, and so that'll be with an upcoming quarterly payment in June. Uh, so it's kind of a continuing progression in terms of the, the numbers we've been able to deliver. We believe we're slightly ahead of street consensus on uh, adjusted earnings and revenues. So it's. Uh, 
The track record is continuing going forward. There's a conference call tomorrow to discuss these results at uh, 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. So we'll have a lot more details. There'll be also a new presentation up uh, tomorrow morning on the website. Uh, and you're welcome to join our conference call at uh, 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. But I, I think in the spirit of, of, the, of uh, an annual meeting and, and the board of directors here, as we very much appreciate you know, the, the support we've had from investors, from the, uh, the, the, the brokerage houses, the banks here in Canada, and the U.S., um, uh, it's just your trust in us has been, uh, uh, we take very seriously. It's a big responsibility. Uh, one of the things we want to do is, is properly celebrate in person uh, Pierre's uh, track record with us. So we're going to invite him for our annual meeting next year. Uh, we even give him an opportunity to speak again. And I think we can probably then get a proper round of applause. It's hard to do on these uh, teleconferences. But we hope you can join us next year. Pierre is chair emeritus. He has to do some work. And so we'll, uh, we'll very much hope you can be part of that. And we're going to try to keep much of the continuity and the culture in this company uh, together for as long as possible. So, hand uh, it back to you. I say it, I think Pierre Lassonde is a historical figure in Canadian mining. It's hard to imagine that Pierre Lassonde would disappear, and he is stepping back. I think he's still chair emeritus on the website, so he's not going to completely disappear. Thank you once again for listening. Feel free to share this with your friends, review it in the Apple Podcast directory, and until next week, as always, take care.